Good morning. We are involved in a little mini-series, aren't we, from last month on into the month to come, and it pertains to who Jesus Christ is and the way in which we go about relating to him. We've considered what it means, first of all, to be in Christ. Furthermore, we've considered what it means to go through Christ, and today we are thinking about what it means to be under Christ. Now, when you begin to think about this, this produces a series of tensions in this world. Because if one is to be in Christ, that means that there are those who are outside of Christ. And furthermore, if we are to exclusively go through Christ to get to God, that means then there will be others and many false religions throughout this world that seek a bypass to get around Christ in his work on the cross to get to God. Though Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and to the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Well, today what we are going to be doing is to understand what it means to be under Christ. And for that, we're going to be turning in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians, where in chapter 15, you've got probably the richest and most profound teaching with regard to this whole idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the relevance that that resurrection has for you and for me today. And so after Paul has gone about establishing the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Now, beginning in verse 20, down through verse 28, we find these words. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all be made alive. And by the way, you'll want to be circling those words, all, they appear again. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to him, then comes the end. And pause, and you want to circle those words then. Word read, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, and then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now you want to start underlining the word under. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. There's a richness here, and hopefully what we're going to be able to do this morning is to understand how the resurrection of Jesus Christ relates to the reign of Jesus Christ 
And we should position ourselves not over Jesus Christ, but under Jesus Christ, as we look to our Lord now in prayer. And our fathers, we're coming before you, we're coming before you, people who entered this world having inherited Adam's sin, his sinful nature. And because Adam sinned and fell, we entered into this world fallen, and our sinful acts are the results of our sinful nature. But we're thanking you, Father, that it did not end there, but you sent the second Adam, Jesus Christ, into this world to reverse the effect of the first Adam's fall. Through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, you are offering us the certainty and the evidence that salvation comes exclusively through Jesus Christ and his finished work. We're praising you and we're thanking you that you have even provided an opportunity to be in Christ. Though we all deserve to just simply be outside Christ. That we are giving you thanks, Father, that there is a way to you through Christ We owe us no way at all. And that, Father, we can find true liberty under Christ's authority, where we can be under Christ and be all that we were meant to be, not merely created, but recreated in the image of Jesus Christ, new creation people. So, Father, now in these minutes together as we're exploring the breadth and the depth of these verses, we're now connecting what it means to be in Christ, to go through Christ, and to be under Christ. Warm these hearts and engage these minds. Shape these wills. We've come here, Father, to see Jesus, Him only. Praying these things again now in in Jesus' name. Amen. How would you handle this? She came into my office, and she had been processing very carefully a long series of two years on the book of Romans. And she had reached a point when she knew some definitive issues had to be addressed in her life. I sensed that we were at that point where she was to put faith and trust in Jesus. And so I opened my Bible to Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, and I said, Mary, Paul states that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And she looked at me and she said, Gary, I love the idea of Jesus as Savior. But I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not too thrilled about the idea of Jesus as my Lord. As I listened to her words, it was very clear that she loved the idea regarding Christ, that he could save her by his work, But she was less than thrilled with the idea of the lordship of Christ where she was under his authority. 
She loved the liberty that came through salvation, but was not so thrilled with the authority that came under lordship. She was wrestling with who's over who. Christ over me, or me over Christ. Now I said, Mary, you have to understand here that it does say that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, there is the outward profession. And believe in your heart that Jesus, that God has raised him from there, you'll be saved. And there's your inward possession. Then the inward and the outward are in harmony with one another. And I said, Mary, consider this and think about this. There was a centurion in the time period in which Jesus ministered. And this centurion had a servant who, who was in desperate need of healing. And so the centurion approached Jesus in Matthew chapter 8. And he said, Lord, he didn't say save me. He said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority. I could see her leaning forward in her chair. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And then when Jesus heard this, he marveled, and he said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And later, to the centurion, Jesus would say, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now, this man understood the significance of authority and in particular what it meant to be under authority and he recognized Christ's authority. He viewed Jesus as such that one Jesus has exclusive authority to validate his claims by healing this man from his sickness. And so now, when you and I begin to think about this, what we are dealing with, not only in the matter of in Christ and through Christ, but what it means to be under Christ, is the issue that A.W. Tozer addressed years ago. Where he was looking around at some of the current crop of teachers out in evangelical circles and became a bit troubled by stating that the only true object of saving faith is none other than Christ himself. Not the saviorhood of Christ, nor the lordship of Christ, but Christ. Christ's saviorhood is forever united to his lordship. And so what Tolson did was not only quote from Romans chapter 10, what we've just looked at, but furthermore went on to speak of that Philippian jailer, who asked the way to be saved, and Paul replied, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Paul saw no division between Christ as Lord 
and Christ as Savior, and neither do we. What I want to do now is to draw out for you some ways in which we can address Mary's thought processes and help her to better understand what she eventually embraced, that Jesus Christ is both Savior and Lord, and there should not be a division between the two. There's two aspects of this passage I want to draw out for us. And first, as people who are under Christ, I want you to note with me the resurrections, plural, of all. The resurrections of all. And we see it now in verse 21 down through verse 24. Now let's begin working this through together and see what this means here. Because in verse 20, as the lead-in, we are told, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, when he says, but in fact, what he's done at this point is gone out of his way to give evidence to the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. God has validated who Christ claimed to be. God has validated what Christ came to do. And now this is the exclamation point to Christ's claims and Christ's work by raising him from the dead But then you read something more here. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, why doesn't it simply say the first of those who have fallen asleep? Well, you might remember that Jesus Christ raised Lazarus from the dead. But what's the difference between Lazarus' resurrection and Christ's resurrection? Great question. Well, The reason we need to be able to answer that is this. Lazarus was raised to die. Jesus was raised to live. Now, because of that, what we find here is that Christ is not merely spoken of as the first, but the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And this is taken from your Older Testament where what you would find is that God has spoken in Leviticus chapter 23 of the whole idea that there is to be the principle of harvest. And in the principle of harvest, there is the seeding of the soil in the spring, and then there's the harvest that comes in the fall. And what God is now saying is that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the harvest, which means there's more resurrection to come. What interests me is that when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, it was on that very day in which the people were celebrating first fruits. Do you see the sovereignty of God's timing? Every Lord's Day when we gather together, we are gathering together on a first fruits Sunday. As F.B. Meyer put it, on that day that Jesus rose, the first fruit sheaf of the barley harvest was being waved by the high priest in the temple. As the representative of the myriads that stood stacked amid the stubble of the fields, it was the specimen sheaf. Representative, pattern promise and pledge of all the rest. So Jesus Christ's resurrection is the pattern, the guarantee, 
the promise, the pledge of more resurrection to come. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, a metaphor for the death of the body. This is an agricultural image now that God has given us to begin to understand God's strategy for you and for me in the way in which he relates to your body as well as to your soul. Now he moves from the agricultural imagery of first fruits to now the historical event that comes with Christ's resurrection in 21 and 22. And notice how it's worded. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come also the resurrection of the dead. That first man was Adam. For as by a man came death, by a man, this is the second Adam, Jesus Christ, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as an Adam, circle the word, all die. The cemetery is simply the evidence of that fact. Everybody is impacted by the first Adam. If people take seriously the scriptures, they would say, here, the cemetery itself is validation of the integrity and the authority of scripture. All die. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall all be made alive. And now we circle those words, all. Which means then that when Adam sinned, the result of that sin was Adam's death. And because Adam sinned, I've inherited and you've inherited Adam's sinful nature. And because we've inherited Adam's sinful nature, we too die. At this point then, a person is going to be asking, but who hired Adam? I didn't hire him. Can't I just simply shout out to God, no damnation without fair representation? That's a little takeoff you see on pre-revolutionary war type thinking. Not to say that damnation and taxation are meant to be together, but then again. <laughs> Why do we want fair representation? We want to have some assurance, you see, that our representatives will accurately represent us. Think of the elections come fall. Every time I choose a representative, my choice is fallible. I'm finite, temporal, changeable. Only once in all of history have I had an infallibly chosen representative. And that was in Eden. God made the choice for me. And so now, was God's infallible choice of my representative better for me than me choosing my representative? Should the infinite, eternal, unchangeable one have a better understanding of what representation means 
than this finite, temporal, changeable one. God is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably all wise, all good, all just. And so he chose perfectly to create Adam with the capacity to fall. And Adam fell. But what you and I need to be able to understand is that just as the first representative ordained by God, chosen by God, fell into sin, leading to death, God chose a second Adam, the second member of the Trinity, who becomes my representative on the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for my and your sins. That too was representation. And so you look at now what is happening at this point, and you realize that God has reversed what the first representative has done to us by bringing death into this world, by offering us now the second representative, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, to create new creation people in Christ Jesus, who go through Christ Jesus to live under Christ Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so we move from the agricultural, you see, to the historical, and we look carefully at the basis of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and ask, where does all this lead? Now, if you and I, as we've noted off and on through the years, were to look at the painting of the Last Supper created by da Vinci, it depicts Christ as Savior in the present tense. If you were to look carefully at that painting, the landscape can be seen through the window in the background of the picture. It's more like Milan, Italy than Palestine. If you examine that scene, the table and the chairs, the cloth, the dishes, and the so on and so forth, were not the sort that were used in Jerusalem, but the kind found in Leonardo da Vinci's time period. And that the people sitting around that table were, were dressed and seated in European style, not in first century Jerusalem style. What was the painter attempting to communicate? That Jesus is very contemporary for you and for me. Relevant for today's living. Not dead, but alive. And we need to be able to see how all this relates to the way in which we go about then living our lives. So you stare this down, you see. And you are moving yourself from the agricultural imagery found in verse 20 on through then the whole aspect of this historical event of Jesus being raised from the dead in 21 on into 22. And we're told for as in Adam all die, and I've circled that word and you have to, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We've got both alls operating here. And then you know what he does? He moves you from the agriculture in 20 
through the historical in 21-22, to now the sequential unfolding of resurrections, plural, in 23 and 24. And I want you to notice carefully the wording. In verse 23, it says, but each in his own order. Do you see that word order? That word order comes from the Greek, tagmati. It was a word that was used in that century in which Paul wrote to describe the Roman divisions, platoons, squads, the military illustration of the way in which the army was structured. Now, you have moved from agricultural through historical to sequential, and now all of a sudden what you find here is that there's a sequence of resurrections that God has established. What comes first? Notice how everything's italicized. Christ, the first fruits. God is so careful in his wording, he doesn't call him Christ the first because he knows Lazarus was raised prior to Christ, but Lazarus was raised to die, Christ raised to live. Christ is the first fruits, which means that when he, the first of the harvest, came in, it then guarantees there's more harvest to come. And so we look and we read on. What comes next? Christ the first fruits. Underline the word then. Then, at his coming. This answers the question when. The second military platoon of resurrection comes forth. Those who belong to Christ. That in that future day, those who have put faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord will likewise be resurrected. It is then the second bring forth of the resurrection harvest that God now has established for you and me based upon and the evidence and the guarantee and the promise of Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. But God does not end that. Because you will notice in verse 24, there is another then that you underline. Because there is a third platoon of resurrection that comes forth. Then comes the end. In other words, the last of this group that comes forward is the resurrection of the unbeliever. And what is the purpose of all this? Well, as God put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, excuse me, when God puts it together for you and for me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now you look very carefully at the words all in 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And therefore, when Paul stated in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat, This means, then, we've got to find out just where do I fit in to this harvest movement? Which platoon division am I part of? Christ, the first fruits, number one. 
Second, those who belong to Christ. Third, then comes the end. The end group. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Tim Keller. He writes of a pastor who was in Italy. And this pastor saw the grave of a man who had died centuries before, who was an unbeliever and completely against Christianity. But a little afraid of it, too. And so Keller tells us that the man had a huge stone slab put over his grave so he would not have to be raised from the dead in case there is a resurrection from the dead. And he had insignias put all over the slab saying, quote, I do not want to be raised from the dead. I don't believe in it, unquote. Evidently, when he was buried, an acorn must have fallen to the grave. So, a hundred years later, the acorn had grown up through the grave and split the slab. And today it is a towering oak tree. And the pastor looked at it and asked, if an acorn, which has power of biological life in it, can split a slab of that magnitude, what can the acorn of God's resurrection power do in a person's life? Now, you'll notice then, we are calling this resurrections, plural. Because you have just identified the three resurrections described here in this passage. And we have said the resurrections of all. Because it includes the first fruit, Christ, followed by the next platoon, those who belong to Christ, followed thirdly, then comes the end, those who have not put faith and trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. This is part of the awe when he delivers the kingdom of God to God the Father, after destroying every rule, do you see the entirety of this? In every authority and power. You have now looked at this agriculturally in verse 20, historically in 21-22, sequentially in verse 23 and 24, and now you're getting a sense of the totality of God's resurrection plan for all history, rooted in that representative of the one who died in your place and was raised from the dead on the third day. And interestingly enough, was raised at the beginning of the harvest of first fruits. That's your sovereign God at work. Now, once you have pulled those thoughts together in 20 through 24, Here's the second aspect of it all in verse 25, down through verse 28. That as people under Christ, then note not only the resurrections of all, found through verse 24, but the reign of Christ, found in 25 through 28. 
Now, in verse 25, you find it phrased this way, for he must reign. When God had spoken to David in the Older Testament, God had said that he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And in verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. But that son of David, you and I know as Jesus Christ, was hanging on a cross. And it looked like that that promise was going to be null and void because here that statement about this kingdom being forever has been entrusted to this one who has king of the Jews over his head, but he is dying on that cross. And being tempted at the same time by people around him to... You are, if you are the Son of God, save yourself. Come on down. What does he do? He stays on that cross, and three days later, God raises him from the dead because this kingdom is forever. Now, the resurrection of Christ, then, has got to be tied to the reign of Christ because God had said to David that this is going to be a forever reign. Now you see how verse 20 through 24 relates to verse 25 through 28. You've established the resurrection. Now you establish the reign. And if he's king, that means then you and I are under him. And the empty tomb validates the fact that I'm not to place myself over Christ and dictate to him what we desire from God. But we are under Christ and we follow the will of God. Now start underlining that word under. It keeps coming at us. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And when I saw all his enemies, I thought about the fact that this week we've just passed through the commemoration of D-Day. And so I pulled out the speech that General Eisenhower at that time delivered to his troops You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. I'm thinking of the platoons now, one by one. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, You will bring about the elimination of Nazi tyranny over oppressed peoples of Europe and security for ourselves in a free world. And then would add, I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. And let us all beseech the blessings of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. And I pondered the significance of that illustration as it related to this in 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and then connected it in my mind as something that Chuck Colson had written years ago, 
The Jews of first century Palestine missed the full significance of Christ's message of Jesus being king. Jesus spoke of a kingdom that had come and a kingdom that was still to come in two stages. Perhaps a contemporary analogy would make it clear. Probably the most significant event in Europe during World War II was D-Day. We just read about it. June 6, 1944. That attack guaranteed the eventual destruction of the Axis powers in Europe. And though the war continued, the outcome was already determined. Now think about the cross of Jesus Christ. The outcome has been determined. Though conflict still remains, sin still exists. But it was not until May 8, 1945, the E-Day, victory in Europe, that the results of the forces set in motion 11 months earlier were realized. Now, tie that to the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. The first coming dies on the cross, three days later raised from the dead. Gives certainty to the fact that he is victorious. But we still await the second coming of Jesus Christ, kind of like a VE day still to come, where this mop-up effort takes place. And we find that the finale being described here is certain. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies, in verse 25, under his feet. And now off to the side, what you do at this point is you write in, next to that verse, Psalm 110, verse 1, where David finds in relationship to God these words, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And there are three participants in that conversation. The Lord, Yahweh says to my Lord, the Messiah, we know is Jesus. Who's the my? My is David. My should be you and me. So now we see that God the Father, working with God the Son, ministering to you and to me in relationship to all this, has established the kingship of Jesus Christ with both present and future aspects to it. You read it again. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under. And you've circled or underlined that word, his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death, which means that Highlander will not have to do any more funerals. And I'll praise God as we go. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And now our mind is going back to that centurion who understands what it means to be under authority and sees no need for Jesus Christ to be under his roof to heal that servant. Because Jesus has all authority, the centurion just puts himself under Jesus' teaching and trusts Jesus to heal. And it's better to be under Christ's authority than have Christ under your roof. 
You can trust him for that. The centurion did. As Mary is listening and leaning forward, you can't divide Jesus to trust him as Savior. You trust him as Lord. And in verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, speaking of that day still to come, when all of this has been brought forward, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. The finale. And you say, and why is this? Here's the answer. That God may be all in all. Not all in some. Not some in all. But that God may be all in all. He has an all-encompassing approach to addressing the issues of life. If you have put your faith and trust in the one who is raised from the dead, you place yourself under the one who is raised from the dead. Jesus Christ. I like the idea of Jesus as my Savior. She looks up towards the ceiling. I'm uncomfortable with the idea of Jesus as Lord. She likes the idea of being saved by his work, but uncomfortable with the idea of living under his authority. She's struggling with the tension between liberty and authority. But true liberty is found under Christ's authority. And when you connect the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the reign of Jesus Christ, you understand that we are meant to be in Christ, that we go through Christ, that we are meant to be under Christ. And now life makes sense. Stand together. There's a totality to all this. You use the word all. No one exempted. Christ raised, followed by believers raised, followed by unbelievers raised. Believers eternally united to Christ. Unbelievers eternally separated from Christ. Believers in Christ, not out of. Believers through Christ, not around him. Believers under Christ, not over him. If there are any here in these services today who have not put faith and trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, Lord and Savior, we pray now that they will repent of sin, put faith exclusively in the one who died for our sins and was raised on that third day, and understand and experience the totality of what life was meant to be in, through, and under Christ, so that you might be all in all. For this, we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.